All right, we're back to podcast. Hope everyone's had a good day in the Lord, and uh, the Lord's helped you this morning. Uh, back to the book of Mark, Mark chapter number three. I love and enjoy the book of Mark. <clears throat> uh, hope you've been enjoying it so far. It won't take long to get through this book. And then don't forget about um, Bible study on Wednesday night. We have a Wednesday night Bible study in person starting in the book of Genesis. So, got a lot of stuff going on here. Mark chapter number 3. Jesus um, begins his healing ministry. And on Sunday morning services, we're going to be looking at some some occurrences of Jesus's healings as well. Uh, we're going to do so for the purposes of, of this theme and topic that we've been on of living in victory and uh, the victorious Christian life. And um, we're starting in Mark. And, and so on Sunday mornings, we're going we're, we're gonna to be on a variety of topics. Sometimes we'll be dealing with Jesus healing someone. Sometimes we'll be um, we'll be just addressing it topically from from various scriptures, sometimes expositorily. Um, but but we're in on, on Sunday nights and the Wednesday nights that we have podcast. We're going to be in Mark, the Book of Mark. We may actually preach some from the Book of Mark as well on Sunday mornings. <coughs> it provides such good preaching material that we want to. Uh, want to make sure that we do do good justice by that. Uh, let's go to Mark chapter 3. The Bible says, And he entered again into the synagogue, and there was a man which had a withered hand. So this is something seemingly simple. He's, he's not dead. He's not even blind. But it's something that man wouldn't be able to heal. Man wouldn't be able to do anything about it's going to take God. It's going to take uh, the power of God. Well, Jesus, when he goes about healing, he, he does so in his own name. In other words, he doesn't call down power from God. He doesn't call God down to do it like the prophets would do. He comes and he just walks in and he heals. Well, that right there sets a different tone than Elijah, than Elisha, than the other prophets. The other prophets would have to come in and they would, uh, they would, in, you know, say in the name of God, in the name of Jehovah, in the name of the mighty, or, or whatever. And Jesus doesn't do that. And with him accomplishing these feats, these miracles, and him not doing these, uh, calling down the power of God, it sets a different tone. Who are we dealing with? Is this indeed God? And the fact is that, yes, it is. And the Bible says he entered into the synagogue. There was a man there which had a withered hand, and they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath that they might accuse him. So already they are <clears throat> they're looking to accuse him. They're looking to uh, cause problems. They're looking to, for a reason to send him to a fake trial to be done away with him. The religious community hates Jesus at this particular point. And he saith unto the, unto the man which had the withered hand, Stand forth 
okay? So he tells him to stand forth. That, that would be to stand still. And he saith unto him, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath, or to do evil, to save life, or to kill? But they held their peace. And so he's asking him, Look, I'm not doing bad. I'm not sinning on the Sabbath. I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm helping this man. So is it lawful for me to help this man on the Sabbath? And, of course, they, they can't answer this. They have nothing to say as a, as a response to this. They just simply hold their peace. And when he had looked round about on them with anger, and you see that, the Bible says, Be ye angry and sin not. Not once in the Word of God does the Scriptures teach us that anger in and of itself is necessarily wrong. We should be angry at sin. We should be angry at what sin does. We should be angry at the works of the devil. Okay, it says, Be ye angry and sin not. Sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. And so, Jesus, this is a crowd that angered Jesus. Jesus was angered at the Pharisees. He was angry at the, the, the religious community. And so the Bible says, He looked round about them with anger, being grieved. He was angry because it, it grieved him in his heart. Uh, their hypocrisy and how, how they're operating for the hardness of their heart. So Jesus looks, and these, you got to remember, and, and what I'm going to be teaching in Genesis is, is the Word of God, the Gospel, that the, the, the Bible from the beginning was committed unto the Jews. The truth was committed unto the Jews. They held the truth. And had more access to truth than any group of people on the face of the earth, but their hearts had become hardened as a result. Do you know I, I've seen that? I've seen that. The Southern Baptist um, has produced a report over the past week naming 700 uh, pastors, teachers, preachers, um, that were part of the Southern Baptist Convention that uh, had were you know were accused of misconduct with uh, folks minors in their churches. Um, and I thought about that. I thought about the fact that at one time Baptist, okay, and now, now don't get me wrong, Southern Baptist. They got a lot wrong a long time ago with the adoption of the, the other versions of the Bibles. Um, just the, the slant towards liberalism and, and so forth. And, and basically um, seeking to discredit the autonomy of the local church in many cases. When it was initially designed to just be uh, a co-op, a cooperation amongst churches. Well, anything that's independent of the local church, and it was, and it is, uh, typically, as it's gained money and power, will corrupt itself, okay? And understanding that, you've got to understand that initially the Baptist people, they were always autonomous churches, and the Baptist people held the truth. We, we've always held the truth. We've clung to the truth. We have 
fought for the truth. But we've really seen the touch and the move of God move off of our churches and off of our ministries for years. And it, it started with the hardness of our hearts. And look at that. Verse 5, it says that he was angry and he was grieved with them over the hardness of their hearts. And he said unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the others. And at that point, verse 6, the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. So this simple act of helping someone on the Sabbath day was enough for them to make their first move and their first attempt to bind together of how they might destroy this man. You know, that still goes on in religion, still goes on in churches, that yeah, a man, a preacher, a pastor will do and or say or preach in a manner that one person doesn't like or takes exception to, that's always a fact. And they will begin to to bind together in an effort to, in essence, destroy that man. And then the Bible tells you right there it comes from a hard and a wicked heart. And it angers and it grieves Jesus. But what does Jesus do? Never stops. But Jesus withdrew himself. Do you see that? Because of the hardness of their hearts, because of his anger and his grievance towards them, he withdraws himself from them. And that's what happens in churches. When folks operate in this manner, when folks operate in, in regards to holding religion above helping people, and then when they begin to operate in a manner to bind together in an effort to hurt someone else, to hurt someone wanting to do good, as Jesus was, the Bible says that Jesus withdrew himself from them. Didn't want anything to do with them. The Bible says here, but Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea, the great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Edemia, and from beyond Jordan, and they about Tyre and Sidon. A great multitude, when they had heard what great things he did, came unto him. And he spake to his disciples that a small ship should wait on him because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. For he had healed many insomuch that they pressed upon him for to touch him as many as had plagues and unclean spirits when they saw him fell down before him and cried saying thou art the son of God and he straightly charged them that they should not make him known so again this is the second time we've read in Mark that Jesus has accomplished a great act and he has told those that he did this for, he has informed those that he did this for, to not make this act known, to not let it be known. And the Bible says, verse number 13, so at this point he's beginning to call his disciples 
verse 13, he goeth up into a mountain, and he calleth unto him whom he would, and they came unto him. The ordained twelve. So this is the first ordination service. Jesus brings forth these twelve men whom he ordains. Let's talk about ordination quickly. Ordination or or ordain simply means to to choose, to pick. And um, what we do in today's churches is there will typically be a a, uh, board or a committee or a group of men that will um, come together for the purposes of, of, of... basically putting their 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 stamp of approval on a minister a preacher uh for the purposes of sending them out that's what ordination would mean to to approve of and to send out to send forth and so when you when when a a group of people ordain ministers that's that's what they're doing they are preparing them and they're uh, they're putting their stamp of approval on them, laying hands on them, praying over them, and sending them forth to do the work of God in their respective called place. Um, that's it. That's it. I know there, because of the Catholic Church or Catholic institution, there's been much, much... Uh, politicization of the ordination process oh he can baptize now or he can he can perform marriages now no i know the state says they require that but for for marriage ceremonies but in the eyes of god an ordained man can marry a woman and a man can baptize uh or he doesn't have to be he doesn't not in the eyes of god that's something that the state has put a parameter upon, not God. So, verse 14, he ordained twelve that they should be with him, that he might send forth them to preach, to have power to heal sickness and to cast out devils. And here, here they go. Simon, he surnamed Peter. So, Simon had a name. Simon had a name, but then he renames him, basically. That's why we call him Simon Peter. Peter would mean little rock, a little stone, okay? That's important because Jesus emphatically later, it's something else I want to talk about, another misdirection, misteaching of the Roman Catholic institution. They interpret when Jesus said, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. They interpret that as it being Peter, that's whom the church is built upon. The church has never been built on Peter. Never was, never will be. He was not the first pope. The term Peter means little rock, okay? Jesus is not building his church on a little rock. He is building his church on himself, the chief cornerstone. In fact, it was Peter in his epistle that called Jesus the chief cornerstone, trying to make it known, look, it, it, this is not coming from me. This is not built upon me. It's built upon the rock, Jesus Christ. And so the Bible says, he surnamed Peter, verse 17, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James. So this is James and John, and he named 
them Bernardis, which is the Sons of Thunder. They were very temperamental. Uh, remember, they argued among themselves. They argued with others. They wanted to call fire down from heaven. That is the Sons of Thunder, James and John. They would be instruments. These first three, it's always mentioned Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. They would be Jesus' inner circle. That tells me it's okay to have an inner circle. It's okay to have a group you confer with. It's okay to have a group that you pray with. It's okay to have a group that you share prayer requests with. It's okay to have a group that, that you trust maybe just a little more. Not that you don't trust others, you just trust these a little more. Jesus had an inner circle, and they were Peter, James, and John. And the Bible says here, verse 18, And Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the Canaanite. And always last, every time they're listed, he is last. Why? Because he was lost. And he was a devil, and he was from the beginning, and Jesus knew it. But he had every opportunity to have a true and pure heart. And Jesus Iscariot, which also betrayed him, and they went into an house, and the multitude cometh together again, so that they could not so much to eat bread. Just something, quick note on Judas. Jesus has 12, 12 men, 12 churches, or 12 church members. Okay? One of them is lost, one of them is a devil. That's, that's about right. One in 12, at least in a lot of churches, are was the devil I mean Jesus the greatest pastor greatest teacher ever had him every church is going to have one one in twelve but then when he teaches the parable of the sower he narrows that to three out of four were actually lost and that gives us credence to narrow is the way the narrow way three out of four if you look at the parable of the sower only one out of four actually took root, bore fruit, and was saved. One out of four that heard the gospel. So one out of 12 was the devil, and then three out of four were actually lost. Man, look, look at those odds. The Bible says, and I, I'm telling you, our churches are filled up with lost people. They are. Churches are filled up with lost That's what's went on. They, they followed religion. They have followed the church creed. They followed the church membership. They followed a softball team. They followed a, a women's group. But they are our churches are full of lost people. And you'll never get a lost person to see the truth until they get saved. And the multitude coming together again, so they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, He is beside himself. And the scribes, which came down from Jerusalem, said he hath bells above, and the prince of the devils casteth out devils. He called them unto him, and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. So immediately he lays down that gauntlet. Church, kingdom, a house, whatever. If it's divided against itself, in other words, if there's infighting, if they can't get along with one another within themselves, there's no way that it'll stand. There's no way that it'll last. There's no way that it'll make it and be strong.
And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand. But he hath no end. So Jesus is laying down a gauntlet here. He's saying, look, you can't be both. You can't be God and Satan. Don't call me Satan. I'm the son of God. I'm casting out devils. Satan would never cast out a devil. That's his objective. Satan would never bring uh, peace and harmony. His objective is division. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first will bind the strong man, and he will spoil his house. Verily I say unto you, all sin shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost never hath forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation, because they said he hath an unclean spirit. All right. Uh, let's run this real quickly. I want you to go to Matthew 12. Matthew 12, 31. Matthew 12, 31. I'm going to talk about this blaspheming, this unpardonable sin. Matthew 12, 31, same thing. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. So, now, this, this verse has troubled a lot of Christians who have wondered whether they may have committed what they call the unpardonable sin. So what the Spirit of God is describing here as an unforgivable sin is to speak against the Holy Ghost. That's according to verse 32 in Matthew 12. Now, the blood of Jesus Christ shed on Calvary is able to cleanse us from every sin. That's what the Bible teaches us. There can't be one specific sin that cannot be forgiven except unbelief. Now, the indication is that it is possible to initially reject God the Father and yet come to know God through God the Son. It is also possible to initially reject the Lord Jesus and yet convicted of sin by the Holy Spirit. Stay with me. Be brought in the end to know Christ as Savior. But if a man rejects God the Father, God the Son, and further closes his heart to the pleading of the Spirit, there is no way for him to be made righteous before God. Here's what I mean. The Word of God teaches us that no man cometh to the Father except my... No man, Jesus said, no man cometh to me except my Father which has sent me draw him. The drawing occurs through the power of the Holy Spirit. This will not and cannot occur if you reject the drawing, you reject the pleading, you reject the wooing of the Holy Spirit of God. That is the unforgivable sin. A lot of Christians think that they have committed some kind of unpardonable sin because they maybe made a statement or said something about the Holy Spirit. What that means is, is the Holy Spirit has wooed you, drawn you, lovingly called you to repentance. You've rejected that. And that rejection of the wooing and the love of the Holy Spirit of God is what will damn you to hell. Don't reject God in His Spirit. So, back to Mark 3 and verse 30. Mark 3 and 30. Because they said he hath an unclean spirit. 
There came then his brethren and his mother, and standing without, sent to him, calling him. And the multitude sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold thy mother and thy brethren, without seek for thee. And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked round about on them which sat about him, and said, Behold my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of God the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. Therein is why your preacher and many others, when we come across someone that is saved and professes to be saved and a child of God, we call them brother. They now become our brother and our sister in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says we have a new family. We've had a family before. We were part of a family, and you still have that earthly family. You don't lose the earthly family upon salvation. Sometimes you may, but if you do, if you do, you've got a spiritual family, spiritual group of people that are now your brothers and sisters in Christ that you will have forever, hence the term brother and sister. Like any family, we'll have disagreements, arguments, fights, and so forth, but we're family. And that's how the church should function. That's how the church should operate. We'll have disagreements and things that we don't see eye to eye on, but we're family. And we need to learn to, to deal with them and operate with them like family. This has been Mark chapter number 3. We'll be in Genesis, Genesis chapter number 1, starting on Wednesday night. And uh, I hope you all have a great, great week and uh, be safe and do something for Jesus and pray for one another. Pray for me and uh, my family. Pray for our church. And I love each and every one of you. Good night and God bless.